Well, first of all, welcome to you all. What a fantastically full uh, room we have, and I think we also have an overflow room tonight. Uh, I'm Perna and I'll be chairing tonight, and I will introduce uh, Professor Zizek in just a moment. I'd like to just say a little bit about the IPA, which is hosting this event tonight. Um, and I can't see Connor, who I'd like to introduce. Where are you? Oh, Connor. You're supposed to be at the front. Um, the Institute of Public Affairs uh, is, is a sort of a relaunched part of the LSC with Connor, Professor Connor Geerty at the back as a director and myself, everybody's turning around right on cue, Connor, and myself as a deputy director where we, where we have a very successful Masters in Public Administration running and we have also some innovative work uh, which you may have heard about, for example, we're now crowdsourcing a new constitution for the UK, literally crowdsourcing, so anybody here wants to have an input or a say in that, please get in touch with me or with Jack, who I'm going to point out now, can you wave, um, who will be available to tell you more about it at the end. Sorry. I missed something. Cannot, no, you just missed. You didn't miss Grace. Don't be afraid. Um, what was I saying? Okay, so we have the Constitution Project. You see, Descartes was right. Women's mind is impressible. You can't think rationally. You are overwhelmed. Right? Are, we, are we having a fight tonight? Absolutely. No, Till okay. death. Okay. <laughs> Till your death, I mean. Okay. Oh. I'm going to have to come back to you in a minute. <laughs> um, so then we also have, we've had a series of talks around One Nation Britain, which I, I, I will we'll be publishing something on shortly. There's really been an interesting debate between political parties, academics, and commentators around what does the idea of One Nation mean, and what is it about? Who owns it? Who has the history? Who wants to take forward ideas for the country as we move forward? And the other project I want to mention to you is one on women in public life called Women um, Above the Parapet, where we're looking at how women have succeeded at getting into senior positions in politics, diplomacy, academia, and civil society. Some of you may have been at the lecture by Joyce Banda a couple of weeks ago. And we have a new one on uh, More Women Can Run by Professor Sue Carroll uh, on the 24th of November. That's our next event. But really, we're really delighted to be hosting Professor Slavoj Žižek tonight. And the IPA exists really to look at the linkages between scholarship and public life, public policy, um, how we think, what we do, and um, we're very, very delighted to host you here tonight. I agreed with Slavo that I wouldn't read the 60-odd pages of biography that exists on, online because then he would have no time to speak. Um, so all I want to say, <coughs> very briefly, is really what you've got on the, on the website, so I won't dwell on it too long. Um, Slavoj is a Hegelian philosopher, a psychoanalyst and political activist, He's, an he's the international director of the Birkbeck Institute for Humanities and the author of numerous books on dialectical materialism, critique of ideology, and art. And tonight he's talking to us um, about his new book, which I can wave, and which he will be signing copies of later tonight after his, um, his lecture. So I would like to speak to us for about 40, 45 minutes. And then more 45. More 45 and 40. Uh, but he has asked me to be fairly strict with time um, as he's speaking, so I will keep an eye on that. And we will then have about half an hour or so, if we stick to time, to have questions and discussion at the end. Uh, so I would like to stay seated here. So I'm sure, I think you just need to pull the mic quite close. All right. And um, 
and I won't delay you any longer. You're all here to hear him. So, Slavoj, over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm also grateful to IPA, which incidentally for me means, of course, also International Psychoanalytic Association, no? <laughs> but uh, I'm, no, I'm really grateful to be here, and my brief intervention may surprise you because I don't know what you expect from me from the attacks, what you can gather from the attacks on me lately that I will do some kind of uh, pro-communist, leftist, fascist, violent stuff. <laughs> so you are in for some big surprises, maybe. Uh, okay. The need to censor our dreams. By this, I simply refer to the fact, especially those who, those social thinkers, politicians who like to or would like to propose an alternate vision of reality, how difficult really it is to imagine an alternative. And it's a nice paradox because precisely in our era when things within so-called real life are really changing, just think about biogenetics and other technological developments. For example, what always intrigued me, I follow it closely, is how with new options of our mind being wired directly to a computer, what was once considered a magic is gradually becoming an everyday practice that you, like Stephen Hawking, no longer needs even his famous finger, you know. You think the computer can decode what you think and the object moves. Your thinks your thoughts have a direct effect on reality. Of course, the problem here is what goes out goes also in. You can be controlled in the same way and so on. What I'm saying is that precisely in an epoch where almost everything appears to be possible at the level of technology or private pleasures and so on, it's more and more difficult to imagine a social alternative. It's an old thought that I often repeat from Fred Jameson, how today it's much easier to imagine the end of the world, of our life, some comet, asteroid hitting the earth, than to imagine a 3% raise of taxes for healthcare, of education, <laughs> and so on. And my, another colleague of mine, Alenka Zupantric, from Slovenia, Ljubljana, member of my theoretical gang, also made this point, how, on the one hand, practically everything seems possible. Today, you can travel into space. The, we have this tech, technological, gnostic dream of ultimate, the ultimate horizon is we turn ourselves, our identity as selves, into a virtual entity that can be simply downloaded from one hard uh, drive to another and thus we become immortal, whatever. That, this is all possible. But in the level of social life and economy, practically everything is impossible. You know, you want to raise taxes a little bit, oh, financial catastrophe, and so on and so on. So we live in a very strange times, and I want to address this. I want to begin with someone whom I appreciate, but I want to quote him. His name is Pankai Mishra, the well-known Indian, I think. Uh, Pankaj Mishra. Yeah, yeah, uh, Pankaj, uh, sorry. It, uh, 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 I appreciate him, but nonetheless, I have a critical point to make. In uh, his recent text with the title On the Twilight of the West, he presents his diagnosis of 
today's predicament. Here comes this slightly, maybe too long quote. I quote, in the 21st century, the old spell of universal progress, whether through Western-style socialism or capitalism and democracy, has been decisively broken. The global crisis, which is as much moral and intellectual as it is political and environmental, puts into question, above all, our long submission to Western ideas of politics and economy. Whether it is catastrophic wars in Iraq and Afghanistan or disastrous interventions in Libya, the financial crisis of 2008, soaring unemployment in Europe, which seems like a problem with no solution, and it's likely to empower far-right parties across the continent. The unresolved crisis of the euro, euro, Hydra's income disparities in both Europe and the United States, the widespread suspicion that big money has corrupted democratic processes, the absurdly dysfunctional American political system, Edward Snowden's revelations about the NSA, or the dramatic loss of a sense of possibility for young people everywhere. All of this, separately and together, has not only severely depleted the West's moral authority, but also weakened its intellectual hegemony. The Western path to modernity can no longer be regarded as normal. It cannot be the standard against which historical change in other part parts of the world is measured. Europeans have had created their own kind of modernity in the very particular historical circumstances of the 19th and 20th century. And other people have been trying since then, with varying degrees of success, to imitate it. But there are, and always were, other ways of conceiving of the state, society, economy, and good life. They all have their own specific difficulties and challenges. Nevertheless, it will be possible to understand them only through an open and sustained engagement with non-Western societies and their political and intellectual traditions. Such an effort, formidable in itself, would also go against every instinct of the self-regarding universalism that West has upheld for two centuries. But it will be needed it will be if we wish to seriously confront the great problem confronting the vast majority of seven billion human beings, how to secure a dignified and sustainable life amid deepening inequality and animosity in an interdependent world." End of quote. Now, this seems almost a commonplace, a doxa today, universally acceptable. Well, I cannot more disagree with it. Why? These long passages, again, render in a concise way the post-colonial common sense, the failure of the Western civilization as a global model, and the failure of those decolonized nations which tried to emulate it. There is nonetheless, I claim, a problem with this diagnosis. Yes, the lesson of post-September 11th catastrophe is the end of the Fukuyama dream of global liberal democracy. But at the level of economy, Capitalism has triumphed worldwide. The third world nations which endorsed it are those which are now growing with spectacular rates. The mask of cultural diversity is sustained by the actual universalism of the global capital. So my point is, 
I'm tired of this post-colonial critique, you know, who know your Western universalism of human rights is, is imposed, it's not a true universalism. I'm not talking about that universalism. I'm talking about capitalist universalism, where simply all these cultural differences are in some sense irrelevant. When a British manager and a Chinese manager meet, in business negotiations. Yes, we can play endlessly these games when they use words like truth, uh, peace, uh, whatever. Do they mean the same thing? It doesn't matter. The deal is done. That's the actual universalism. And I find it paradoxical when people talk about decline of the West and the end of Western universalism, when precisely Western capitalism effectively is universal. And this new global capitalist functions, that's for me the ultimate paradox, even better if its political supplement relies on so-called, I'm not a racist here, it has nothing to do with Asia, what we falsely call Asian values, a more authoritarian version. Global capitalism, I claim, has no problem in accommodating itself to a plurality of local religions, cultures, traditions, and so on. I think, for example, I, that there is no paradox in what, if I know the media, I, uh, what I know from the media, if it's right, maybe you know much better than me, like now in India, Modi, how is it called, how do you pronounce it? Modi, yeah. Modi, yes. At the same time, at least he was, I don't know how hypocritical is he now, a pretty violent Hinduist nationalist and a total partisan of the most ruthless global capitalism. This is global capitalism. Global capitalism is not we must all eat hamburgers and so on. Global, the form of global capitalism is uh, uh, more and more narrow nationalisms. Uh, global capitalism, again, has no problem in accommodating this plurality of local cultures and so on. So the cruel irony of anti-Eurocentrism is that on behalf of anti-colonialism, one criticizes the West at the very historical moment when global capitalism no longer needs so-called Western cultural values in order to function smoothly. And it's doing quite well with authoritarian alternate modernities. In short, one tends to proclaim Western cultural values that at the very moment when critically reinterpreted, of course, many of them, egalitarianism, welfare state, and so on, can effectively serve as a weapon against capitalist uh, globalization. And I'm not bluffing here. You know, for example, when I was in India, I noticed how all those who are, whose mouths are full against uh, Western imperialism and so on are usually the Brahmin uh, cultural studies people, who went up even up to defending Hindu uh, caste system as, you know, it's our cultural specificity, what right do you from your Western imperialist perspective have to cancel it? While on the other hand, where I immediately felt at home is with untouchables and with, uh, how do you call them, Dalits, uh, the, the, the untouchables, the, the, the lowest, plus with, I have some sympathies for them, with, how do you call them, Naxalites, the Maoist guerrilla, Naxalites, yes. Here you can see how biased our own media. There are almost one million of them. And you barely don't read of them. There is a great rebellion going on in India. It's ignored. Or the political struggle with which I am involved, in which I am involved there, 
Gandhi against Ambedkar, a more egalitarian tradition. You know, Gandhi, I have problems with Gandhi. He was a great guy. He did many great things. <laughs> but, you know, his attitude towards caste was, sorry, what I'm tempted to call proto-fascist. He was not for the abolition of castes. His motto was, every caste is divine. They have their own role to play, their own... And uh, the Dalits, whom I met, the lowest of the lowest, those who clean the dry toilets, they told me, no, we don't want to keep our specific identity. <laughs> we, we, precisely, we want to disappear. We want no longer to be who we are. We don't care if you say we also have a divine role and so on. So let's go on. In, uh, we, so we should bear in mind that Global capitalism does not automatically push all its subjects towards hedonist permissive individualism that we have in our countries. And the fact that in many countries which recently entered the road of rapid capitalist modernization, China, India, and so on, many individuals stick to the so-called traditional, pre-modern, Beliefs and ethics, family values, rejection of unbridled hedonism, strong ethnic identification, giving preference to community ties over individual achievement, respect for elders, and so on. This in no way proves that they are not fully modern. As if people in the liberal West can afford direct and full capitalist modernization, while those from less developed Asian, Latin American, African, country, African countries can only survive the onslaught of capitalist dynamics through the help of the crutches of traditional ties. That is to say, as if traditional values are needed when local populations are not able to survive capitalism by way of adopting the proper capitalist, liberal, hedonist, individualist ethics. I think that post-colonial subaltern theorists who see in the persistence of pre-modern traditions uh, in global capitalism and its violent modernization, disruptive of traditional ties, uh, who perceive in this way global capitalism, I think uh, are here wrong. On the contrary, fidelity to pre-modern, so-called falsely Asian values, is paradoxically the very feature which allows countries like China, Singapore, India, to follow the path of capitalist dynamics even more radically than Western liberal countries. Reference to traditional values enable individuals to justify their ruthless engagement in market competition, to justify it in ethical terms, like I'm really doing it to help my parents to earn money so that my children will be able to study and so on and so on. We can say something similar about today's China, I think. It is wrong to claim that China faces the choice of becoming a truly capitalist country or of maintaining the communist rule which thwarts the full capitalist development. I claim this choice is a false one. In today's China, capitalist growth is exploding not in spite of the communist rule, but because of it. Far from being an obstacle to capitalist development, the communist rule guarantees the best conditions for unbridled capitalism. Here we should be effectively anti-Eurocentrist. It's our prejudice that there is something like a natural marriage between capitalism and so-called Western hedonist individual values, 
No, this marriage is dissolving today. It's approaching divorce. Today, and that's for me the danger, the tragedy, we have new forms of capitalism, China, Singapore, and so on, which uh, function even more smoothly in the sense of, of course, crazy capitalist self-destructive dynamics and have no need of, uh, no need of uh, democratic freedoms and so on and so on. Capitalism today functions even better without uh, democracy. So again, how in these conditions can we imagine an alternative? Uh, the problem that I see is not only that it's difficult to imagine a radical alternative. Everybody knows this. Uh, although incidentally, we all know that something is wrong. And my ultimate proof here, I hope I'm, you are corrupted like me, I like Hollywood blockbusters and so on, where friends are telling me, but you are a stupid Marxist, probably you are still influenced by your communist Yugoslav past. Where do you see class divisions today? I tell them I see them in Hollywood. Did you notice how almost all big blockbusters tell an extremely violent story of a new post-apocalyptic society with radical class divisions, Hunger Games, Elysium, and so on? My God, Hollywood knows it. You know, it would be very nice in this sense to read even James Bond films in a symptomatic way as a document of our era. I'm thinking about two moments. The first one is, did you notice that James Bond films traditionally are one of the few films in which you can still see the active material productive process? But you know where? In the middle of the film, usually Bond penetrates the bad guy's private domain, the small factory, where they either process drugs, deal with diamonds, gold. There you see production, material production. And then what's the function of James Bond? He's almost a kind of an agent of those theorists of disappearing labor and so on. His function is to explode this <laughs> so that, you know, we no longer have material production and so on. The other thing that makes me sad, but I don't have time to improvise in this in James Bond films, is that, do you notice a sad thing in one before, not the last one, one before, Quantum of Solace? It was a standard feature of James Bond films that at the very end you have big sex between Bond and Bond girl. <laughs> this one, where the woman, the Bond girl is Olga Kurilenko, the Ukrainian star, is the first one, remember, with no sex at the end. They just embrace, they are too desperate, they go apart. Wh why is this so fascinating? Uh, because, uh, 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 because you cannot accuse it of being a conservative film. On the other hand, politically, Quantum of Solace is the most leftist Bond that I can imagine. Basically, explicitly, James Bond saves Morales' regime from some bad multinational company which wants to monopolize water supply in Bolivia. But no, you know why I think this is dangerous? It's not any feminist potential, like let's step out of this male chauvinist, penetrative, whatever sexuality. It's something much more ominous. Did you notice how you find the same thing in, now I'm really moving to lowest of the lowest, Dan Brown novels and films. <laughs> Did you notice how already Da Vinci Code no sex. You cannot screw the grand-granddaughter of Jesus Christ. No. <laughs> but did you notice how in Angels and Demons, the last uh, film, 
something very strange happens. You have sex in the novel at the end between Langdon and that Italian scientist, Vittoria Vetravot, but not in the film. Isn't it strange? Once we thought Hollywood acts sex to make it more commercial, now Hollywood is erasing sex. I don't think there is anything uh, uh, progressive in this. I think it's an extremely sad tendency whose expression is also the excess of political correctness and Western Buddhism and so on. The idea is this one. You know, in English and in French, there is the expression to fall in love, which precisely refers to the verb fall. We fall in love. And that's what is wonderful. Love is fall. You are surprised, shocked. You open yourself to it. We are no longer ready to fall in love. We are all these fake Buddhists, Richard Gere-like Buddhists, you know, like, <laughs> as they say in, in Star Wars, you know, don't identify yourself too much, don't attach yourself too much to worldly object, gain a distance, and so on. So I really think that we are approaching an era where casual one-night stands, that's okay, a full passionate love affair, ah, you are over-attaching yourself. <laughs> the spontaneous ethics today, I claim, is no longer the ethics of passionate attachment. Fall in love, dedicate yourself. No, it's something like a vulgarized version. She's my friend, I appreciate her. A kind of vulgarized ver version of Judith Butler, you know. <laughs> Reconstruct your identity all the time. Don't fixate yourself. Experiment with your life and so on and so on. And it's very sad what is happening here, because it's the same phenomenon at all levels. What I mocked in all my books, you know how we can have today beer but without alcohol, coffee without caffeine, sausages without fat, when we also have sex, well, basically without sex. It's called safe sex. Safe sex, you know. It's horrible. Like, one of the most depressive experiences I had is a couple of months ago, I was flying to the United States, and that, how is it called, hemispheres, the plain journal of United, there was a big two pages text uh, celebrating sex. Ooh, I said, let's read it. <laughs> it depressed me totally. It praised sex, but you know how? If you fornicate often, it helps your leg muscles and heart, you will live longer. <laughs> it even goes that deep French kisses are good because they, uh, they keep firm your mouth uh, muscles so that when you are old, you will not... Uh, Suck. Yeah, yeah. It's horrible. We, the, you know, we maybe we lack authentic consumerism. Maybe that's why we are so afraid of smoking. I don't smoke. But I think there is something absolutely symptomatic about our obsession with smoking. It cannot be rationally explained. At the level of rational reality, I say no problem punish them and so on, companies. That's not my point. My point is what? The me I claim that what really disturbs us when you see a smoker is someone who is ready to risk it and enjoy to the end. That disturbs us. This is why this is a nice symptom. Recently I read American airline companies prohibited even e-cigarettes, electronic cigarettes. You know what's the reasoning? Not it's dangerous, but that by using e-cigarette during the flight, you give bad example to others that you are not able to control yourself. <laughs> Next step is, it happened two week, uh, three, four weeks ago in Australia. I was shocked. 
It's not a joke. I thought it was a joke, then I called my friends there, it's true. In Perth, you know, the modern West, Perth, Australia, they have an opera. That opera decided to prohibit Carmen by Bizet. You know why? Because the first act takes place in a tobacco history, so it can be read as propaganda for tobacco. <laughs> no, sorry, I claim, I claim that uh, this attitude of, you know, like uh, what they called Clinton sex, you know, you, uh, you like have it without fully enjoying it. Without, uh, uh, I claim this is, uh, this is a very sad indication of an extremely controlled subjectivity emerging where basically the ultimate creep, dangerous intruder, is the other as such. That's why I also oppose, up to a point, at least uh, 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 the topic of harassment. Of course I'm against harassment when rapes happen and so on. I mean, I'm a, a one of the few guys whom I know who is even for death penalty for rapists. I don't have any problems. I'm just saying that if you just go a little bit beneath the surface, you find that there is more hidden in this fear of harassment. Harassment even have, it's clear for me with my American friends, all these upper middle class in, uh, uh, academics, harassment basically means all those loud, ordinary people who smell bad, who talk dirty, blah, 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 they shouldn't come too close to me. Harassment is the very form of intolerance. It means I love blacks, but they smell bad, their music is too loud, I don't want them too close to me, and so on. And that's how racism functions today. Nobody, almost, is openly a racist today. No, we all say they are wonderful, the other, but, but, no, I don't like their spices, their music, and so on and so on. Okay, so uh, uh, since I lose time, no, as usual, <laughs> maybe I will go on at this level of uh, 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 harassment, uh, the other, and so on, make a detour, and then maybe at the end I will return to this need to censor of dreams, because I would like to focus on the one topic which seems to me very indicative of the, the tendency that I want to condemn this, or to diagnose this tendency of apparent alternative radical breakthrough, but which effectively uh, just reproduces the structure of the existing power, what I call in my books uh, inherent transgression. Uh, it is what? Let me begin by a scene from one of my most favorite British movies, Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Somewhere in the middle there is an episode where the pupils in a class await for the teacher to arrive. They are bored, they sit calmly at their benches, yawning, staring into the air. Then one of them, standing close to the door, shouts, oh, the teacher is coming, and the pupils explode into the wild activity of shouting, throwing papers, shaking their tables, all the stuff pupils are supposed to do when the teacher is absent. So that when the teacher enters, she can be annoyed and shout at them, stop this circus, quiet, and so on and so on. I think the insight of this is a very, is a very deep one, that all that wild children's activity, which apparently annoys the the teacher is really staged for his gaze. It is not spontaneous amusement. It is something performed for the teacher. And I think the same 
goes for our most intense forms of enjoyment, which are not spontaneous outbursts, but something learned by imitation, an acquired taste. I appeal to your memory. Remember your first experience of drinking a hard liquor or smoking. As a rule, it was a slightly older peer who told you half in secret, you know what the adults are doing, whiskey, cigarettes, and then you try it and you admit it, must admit it. Your first reaction was, <coughs> it's horrible, horrible, how can you? Then you learn to enjoy it. It begins as distaste, and uh, I claim the same even goes for sex. It's the same as with drinks. If you want pleasure, you drink stupid milk or fruit juices. All other higher pleasures, like whiskey, is an acquired taste. The same goes for sex. But uh, <laughs> let me go on now into more serious domain. A similar lesson can be learned from swearing, talking really dirty. It may appear that in the middle of a polite conversation, you get really mad, you cannot hold back anymore, you are totally frustrated, so you explode into it. I claim this is not how it is. I claim that precisely when apparently you lose your nerves and explode. At that point, you follow the ritual, the formula, a cliche, totally. I noticed how, maybe I'm a madman here, but I have a ritual with my good friends. When we meet each week for a conversation and so on, for the first five minutes, we engage in a five, ten minute session of rough, tasteless swearing, offending each other. You know, all the unimaginable stuff of, and we from ex-Yugoslavia, we know how to do it. Like, <laughs> I will dig your dead mother out of her grey and screw her up her ass. It's all there. And then a miracle happens. After five, ten minutes of this, we looked at each other friendly and we say, okay, now, this boring ritual is behind us, now we can act like normal people and talk nicely and so on. I find this a wonderful structure, which works. But now things are get more serious. We should apply this lesson, I think, also to forms of collective violence, like gang rapes and killings. One of the terrifying effects of the non-contemporaneity, different levels of social life today in the world, is the rise of violence against women. Not just viol random violence, but systematic violence. Violence which is specific to a certain social context, which follows a pattern which transmits a clear message. For example, while we were right to be terrified at the gang rapes in India, you remember a couple of months ago, a girl was raped by five men in a bus. Ooh, it was reported in all media. But as my friend Arundhati Roy pointed out, the cause of this unanimous outburst of moral indignation was that the rapists were poor from the lower strata. She told me, well, if you want to be shocked, you don't need to wait for those buses. Go to Bombay and look there at the prostitution ring, where, for example, you can buy relatively inexpensively girls from five years on of age, bought from poor Nepal farmers as sexual slaves, and so on and so on. Uh, or another phenomenon which really shocked me. The serial killings of women in Ciudad Juarez at the border with Texas. 
they are not just private pathologies, but a ritualized activity. I read two, three books of them and spoke with some of my Mexican friends. It's horrible. In Ciudad Juarez, there are a thousand, this is the capital of this fast assembling industry. So the ideal uh, working class there are young single women. And of course, this is an affront to male, uh, male uh, sense of authority because you have there thousands of independent young women. So a ritual emerged. A certain number, up to 100 every year, are kidnapped, serially raped, and then slowly tortured to death in a way which is a little bit too tasteless even for me. Like first they cut off their breasts with scissors and so on and so on. But what I try to say is that uh, what is so terrifying about it is that if you look at it closely, and that's my point, this is not some kind of a, a elementary outburst of male fury. It's the clear symbolic structure. It's a social ritual. And interestingly, this is what the police tries to, blaze da to, to, to play down. Incidentally, as you can expect it, uh, the only person who was punished in Ciudad Juarez till now was a mother whose daughter was killed and who complained <laughs> too much. No? Now you will say I'm playing an American racist, blaming the poor Mexicans. Ah, uh ah, -uh, let's go to the other side, North Vancouver, Canada. You know, Canadians, arrogant, like, we are the best of America, half America, <laughs> half Europe. I was told by my friends there, and I even read some uh, 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 parliamentary investigation reports, like you can find it on the web, Forsaken, the report of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry by the government of British Columbia from 2012. There also, close to Vancouver, you have some reserves, reservations, whatever you call them, where, and again, young white people go there, kidnap an Indian, Native American, whatever you call it, girl. They, again, rape her seriously, torture her till death, and then dump the body. And again, that's the point I want to make. This became a ritualized activity. And what police investigation downplays is precisely this social symbolic ritual aspect. They systematically try to read it as <coughs> family matter among Native Americans themselves. Like, oh, probably mother is a drug addict, father is a drunkard, and so on. You know, this dimension of group ritualized activity disappears. Of course, it's the same with uh, an obvious example in our societies like the cases of pedophilia in the Catholic Church. Again, I think what is crucial is that it's not simply that there are pedophiles everywhere, so there are also in the Catholic Church. The problem is in what sense and to what degree pedophilia is a kind of a, what I call institutional unconscious, an obscene institutional sec secret ritual part of the identity of Catholic Church. And it's clear that it's like this for me from the way the Catholic Church in most countries reacts to it in this immediately protective way and so on and so on. Now, the first lesson from this, I don't have time to develop it in my books, I developed it in detail, is that when you observe a certain, analyze a certain ideology, and ideology for me is a very wide term, it's not just 
ideology in the sense of the big symbolic uh, 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 field of an elaborated theory and so on. No, ideology is for me something that penetrates and structures our everyday life. The way I experience foreigners, the way I find certain things pleasurable, other things non-pleasurable, there. For example, I read recently, uh, to not, I will avoid mentioning my standard example, which I repeated so often that I'm bored by it, of the structure of different toilets in different countries. But for example, recently I read a wonderful text on how the structure of kitchen sinks differs in Denmark and in Sweden. It may appear a totally pragmatic point. You learn it's the whole ideology of how you perceive getting rid of that excess of food. So my first point is every ideological field is immanently, necessarily inconsistent. It has a certain set of rules, but also the way these rules are violated, is codified, and you are even expected from time to time to violate in a codified way these rules. So to get an ideology, you must take into account both aspects. Uh, now I want to move to illustrate this point to a more political aspect, uh, this inconsistency of an ideological legal order in China. When I was in China, of course, I asked these unpleasant questions, my colleague there, they were like half official uh, philosophers, thinkers, like, you know, these usual stupidities, like, you pretend to be still a communist country, where is the working class, where is communism, and so on and so on. And it shocked me how they reacted. It's not so much that they tried to squeeze out with some argumentation, which was incidentally pretty funny. I told them, uh, okay, you pretend to be a communist country, communism means working class, where are the working class rights, and so on. Okay, I was immediately told that I am confusing leftism with communism. <laughs> communism is a science of social development which teaches you how society develops. And uh, Marxist analysis teaches you that for China at this point, fast capitalism is the best means of development. So, to be a consequent Marxist, you must, and so on. But there was something more fundamental. They reacted in this embarrassed way, you know, like, as if I'm impolite. You don't ask these questions. Can't you see that I am, that we are embarrassed, and so on. And I'm not now blaming the Chinese playing a racist game. The same thing happened to me back in London, one mile north from here at Birkbeck College, where a half a year from now, I think so, we had a conference, the actuality of the theological political. And at some point, there were three panelists up there, each talking their stuff, and I did something extremely tasteless, I discovered afterwards. <laughs> I asked them a simple, stupid question. We are here leftists who talk about religion. You all talk enthusiastically about uh, emancipatory potential, for example, of Christianity in Latin America and so on. I asked them a simple question. Do you believe in it or not? You know, are you just using religion as an example or in this condescending Marxist way, like for us we are dialectical materialists, but for stupid Latino Americans you need religion to mobilize them and so on, or do you really believe in it? What shocked me is that they all reacted in this embarrassed way, like, 
As if I was asking then, sorry for the tastelessness, like, in what position did you have sex the last night, you know? <laughs> like, one of them told me in panic, no, no, I'm here as a literary analyst, I cannot answer that, you know? All absolutely, and I think this is where we are with belief today. You know, we have beliefs, I don't think we really live in an atheist era. It's a much more complex thing. We believe maybe more than ever, but in this way that you are not ready to admit it publicly, and we have a whole set of strategies of how to displace beliefs onto others. Like when I ask my Jewish friends, but the same goes for my Catholic friends and so on. Do you really believe in it? They, you know, and then you have a whole series of answers. No, but I act as if I believe because I respect my tradition, because I uh, don't want to disappoint my children and so on. And here, I don't have time to elaborate it, but here wonderful notions can be mobilized. One is absolutely crucial one, a belief without believers. I think this is a fundamental category today. A certain belief can function socially without any person in the first person, as it were, actually believing in it. You know, like I read, I read, for example, stupid example, ask a parent when he buys a Santa Claus a present for his or her children, do you really believe in it? He says, no, I'm not crazy, I'm buying it. Okay, but then ask the child. I promise you she will say, of course, I'm not stupid. I just <laughs> pretend to believe not to disappoint my parents and to get a, so nobody has to believe, but it functions as a belief. And I claim it's exactly the same with most of religion today. But wait a minute. I am not saying they don't really believe they fake. No, their fake is their distance. I claim they really believe, but they are not ready to admit it. We believe in precisely in our cynical era, we believe much more than we are ready to, to admit. So back to China. So we have this inconsistency, which is a necessary inconsistency. And what fascinates me so much is that the outcome of this complication is that you do not have simply explicit public beliefs or norms, rules, even laws, and then what is prohibited. At a certain point, things function in a very weird way. At a certain point, you have prohibitions which not only determine what is prohibited, but which are themselves prohibited. You have to respect them, but you have to pretend that they don't exist as prohibitions. I'm sorry if I stage here the same comedy as I usually do. If some of you know it, I'm sorry. Like, Stalinism works like this. Imagine, it's my golden dream, I'm sorry. Imagine we are in Moscow, 37, uh, I'm Comrade Stalin, you are the Central Committee, I give a big speech, you applaud as it is your duty. Then we have a debate. One of you stands up and attacks me. Now, this is madness, no? The next day everyone will ask the question, who saw, who was the last to see alive that guy? But <laughs> I will complicate it further. Imagine then another guy standing up and attacking the first guy, telling him, but are you crazy? Don't you know that here we are not allowed to criticize Stalin? You don't do this. I claim he, the second guy, would have disappeared even faster. <laughs> you see the point. It wasn't only prohibited to criticize Stalin. It was absolutely even more prohibited 
to publicly say that it's prohibited to criticize Stalin. This, so uh, uh, all the, the system functioned in, so that's my point. With every social symbolic system, you never simply have rules and what these rules prohibit. You always have a double displacement. On the one hand, you have prohibitions, which are, as it were, made to be violated. Most of the, like when your father tells you don't mess with girls, it usually in a male chauvinist society means do it discreetly and so on. <laughs> I mean, there are rules with regard to which you are an idiot if you don't violate them. And then there are a much more interesting phenomenon, the opposite thing. There are things which you are permitted, even solicited to do. You can do them. You have a choice to do them, but on condition that you don't uh, use that choice. And these are, I think, uh, the most, uh, the most interesting ones. I'm not a pessimist here. What I want to say is that uh, because of this, uh, you can sometimes fight the system with pure naivety, that you simply discount these implicit prohibitions. I'm sorry if you know this story, it's my favorite story. It happened to me, late 70s, Yugoslav regime, it was communism, but not too harsh a communism, no? And I was a member of some student uh, uh, journal, and okay, there were elections. There were the Soviet-style elections. It wasn't like in Soviet Union, the party always got 99.9%, it got like 80%. It was more <laughs> liberal, but we knew it. So on the eve of elections, we wanted to do a small provocation, and we asked ourselves, what should we do? Should we do the heroic thing, like, publishing an issue of our journal, no, these were false elections, they were not really free. No, we thought first nobody would learn anything new. I mean, everyone knew this. And we decided to do something much more intelligent. We said, since the party claims that these are free elections, what if we treat them as if they are free? And we published an extraordinary issue of our journal on the evening of uh, the elections where you know, the title was uh, Latest News. It looks that communists will remain in power, you know, like <laughs> as if everything was uncertain and people were trembling. <laughs> the reaction was incredible. We were immediately called to the Central Committee. It wasn't a real danger, just it was already a comedy. But, and then I sympathized with the poor guy there, the bureaucrat, because he told them, boys, don't fuck with us. You don't do things like this. And we told him, please tell us what did we do wrong. You said these are free elections. We treated them as free elections. <laughs> he wasn't able, because of course, he wasn't allowed to say, fuck you, you know that these are not free elections. <laughs> He was just repeating, boys, don't provoke me, don't fuck with me. But it was tragic because, you know, he wasn't uh, able to. So I think that, again, back to this uh, point, uh, uh, what I find so fascinating is precisely this structure, which is up to a point also, it's not just China, it's our structure today, where we are free. But we are so free that we are less and less even able to perceive where we are not free. Because where are we free? We are free when we, and this is a good thing, I'm not trying to 
sell you some communist bullshit that this is just formal freedom and so on. No, it's nice to have this freedom of choice at the everyday level. You can choose your sex orientation, books you read, where do you travel, blah, blah. But the point is that in order to exercise this freedom, you always do it within a certain social context. And there, to co-determine, to change that context itself, I claim we are less and less free. And that's why I made such a fuss. I published a short comment in, in Guardian, even and so on, on you know all these agreements that are now being prepared, TISA, TISA, and so on, this big trade agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. These are agreements which will determine in detail the economic coordinates of our life, which will limit incredibly the ability of governments to change things. And there is no public debate. They are even, uh, at least according to the first draft, one of these agreements, Taisa, was not only secret, but supposed to remain secret five years after its endorsement. So you see, this is the crucial point. Yes, we have freedom, and it's nice that we have this freedom, freedom of everyday choices and so on. But for me, nonetheless, I'm here an old-fashioned leftist guy, freedom should be also something more. The freedom also to choose the very frame of choices. You know? And there we know less and less. I claim, on the contrary, we are approaching an era where economic decisions or decisions about war and so on, they are made absolutely behind our back. We don't, we don't, know, what is, uh, we don't know what is happening. So uh, how then does ideology function at this level? I claim it functions by trying to blame us by false individualization which means superego. You know the Freudian superego paradox. The more you are innocent, the more you are guilty. How does this function? The superego pressure does not squash your individuality. Superego pressure does not mean you lose your individuality, you, you become a member of the crowd, anonymous, uh, uh, immersed into crowd passions and so on. On the contrary, as Etienne Balibar, wonderfully put it recently, reversing Louis Althusser's classic formula, superego interpolates subjects into individuals. That is to say, you, let's take ecology. You feel superego, uh, 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 you know, it's there five minutes, it says, but I say, why don't we reject this mechanistic, <laughs> mechanistic Western linear notion of time, you know? You are a colonialist agent here. <laughs> no. My notion of time is Western, non-linear. 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 Sorry, I will finish. I'm sorry. No, I just want to say that this is for me the primary everyday form of ideology. Precisely this false individualization, you know, like don't blame institutions. Look at yourself. What did you do to fight environment? Did you did you did you recycle coke? Did you put all the newspaper, all the paper aside, where it individualizes you in this culpabilizing way, and so on. That's ideology at its purest today. And I think even at the, uh, 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 yes, ecology functions like this, like, you know, all this pseudo-individualizing, like, what did you do today to repay your debt to nature? Did you put all newspapers into a proper recycle bin? 
did you put all the bottles of beer uh, in, uh, of beer or cans of coke into a special box or whatever and so on and so on did you use air conditioning instead of just opening the window and so on and so on uh, and I find you know this but you know what's the paradox here and that's the superego dimension that the more you control yourself the more you try to be correct in this way the more you feel guilty the more you discover that you are infinitely guilty i know with my american politically correct friends you know like uh, this endless self self-examination was i right to to use that f word what if it was offending i looked that woman in straight into the eye was it already a visual rape or whatever? <laughs> and I claim that the more you go in this direction, you see, the more you try to be clean, the more, the more, you, uh, the more you feel uh, guilty. And of course, the trick of this is that at the same time, and this is for me why, as I always repeat, Starbucks are the ultimate ideological company today. Starbucks is capitalist genius at its purest. It takes into account the fact that today we have this politically correct fear, nobody wants to be a pure consumerist. No, you feel bad. Oh. Eh, but they offer a solution, enter it. No, you have usually big posters claiming 5% of our profits go for some stupid Guatemala children, five <laughs> other percent. So it's a wonderful idea. You can be peacefully a consumerist because your social duty towards nature and others, it includes into the price of the commodity, you know. <laughs> it's perfect capitalism, and again, it plays this game on, of, of, individual, uh, of individual culpabilization and so on and so on. So if you allow me just to uh, briefly conclude uh, what I wanted to say here, it's, and a little, two, three minutes, no, because I nonetheless wanted to return to politics. It's that uh, to really approach a future in an open way, the first thing to do, and this is cleansing, not ethnic cleansing, but ethical cleansing of our dreams, uh, I think we should, if precisely you want to be a leftist, you should accept, to put it briefly, that the 20th century is over. Of course, we all know the Stalinist version of communism, it's passé. Although it's not simply passé. Today, where Stalinist communists are still in power, they are the best managers of capitalism today. <laughs> no? But that's another irony. No? For social democratic welfare state, I don't think we can return to it. And this is for me, if you ask me. I sympathize with them. I read Piketty, I read Stiglitz, and so on. But they are, for me, too utopian, precisely insofar as they want to be realistic. Look, what does Piketty want? He wants the system the way it is, he admits, just to raise taxes. I claim, if we are able to do this, we, in order to be able to do this, we already have to win. Because if he knows very well that the way capitalism is global, so you cannot be in one country, so his solution presupposes a kind of a global, at least legal, economic authority which can impose worldwide measures. If this happens, we are already there, we already won. Stiglitz, the same problem, where he recently says in a very nice way, the problem is not capitalism, the problem is democracy. We just have to change the laws, you know, and so on, to make them more uh, 
yeah, I mean, higher taxes, more welfare, and so on. But I say uh, it's precisely the utopia. This is what Hegel means by abstract thinking. You take one measure, let's do this. But wait a minute. If you really want to do this, you soon discover that you have to do so many other things. Imagine just raising taxes. Okay, capital flows abroad. So what will you do? You have to either isolate your country or enforce international measures, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, you have to do so many other things. It's difficult. Uh, so again, a welfare state, I don't think we can return to it. But, uh, uh, but also, and this is, with this I will, don't worry too much, conclude. Uh, the last dream that had to fall, I'm very skeptic about it. I think it's the worst illusion. Is this so-called anti-representative direct local democracy. This is the real heart of the left. They are ready to drop communism, they are ready to drop social democratic welfare state, but, you know, people gathering together locally and so on. That, I think, doesn't work, ultimately. It doesn't. Because, first, in our today's predicament, what we, what we need, just imagine how can we fight ecology, how can we fight biogenetics, who will control it, how can we fight the problem of intellectual property, which I think is a, maybe a deadly mortal problem for today's capitalism. Uh, we will need large regulatory measures which have nothing to do with this local uh, democracy. The second illusion is this one. The idea of, and this is where I differ from most of today's radical leftists. They still have this dream, you know, locally, cooperatives, people taking over, and so on. This works up to a certain degree. This works, this direct popular mobilization. This works in emergency states. But for me, and this is my big obsession, the true problem of a revolution is the morning after. That is to say, it's relatively easy, relatively, to do big event, Tahrir Square, or, or in Istanbul, at Geza, or whatever, or Athens, hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating, and we all cry, you know, how wonderful. What interests me is, and that's for me the only serious measure of a revolt or social change, when, after a month or two, things return to normal, how will we feel the change then? What I really hate are these enthusiastic leftists who like every 10 years a big event and then they can meet uh, once a year in the evening to drink tea and was it, it nice when we were there, thousands of us? I don't care about that. Second thing, let me tell you something horrible and I don't think I'm here reactionary. I'm here proper leftist. Can you imagine living in a shitty society where you have to be all the time engaged in some stupid local problems and participate <laughs> and so on? I want to live in a society where an invisible network makes things function. I want to have peace to watch my shitty movies, to read books and so on. Uh, you know, this is the true challenge today. Everyday life revolution. And here, I think we are in a tragic predicament. Because on the one hand, that's why I'm still some kind of a Marxist, although very weird Marxist. I develop this in many of my books. We are confronting problems where I think, I'm sorry, contemporary capitalism doesn't have the means to cope with them. 
and I have here a great ally, the last time I met him. Even Fukuyama is no longer a Fukuyamaist. He admits it, like ecology, uh, biogenetics, you cannot do it within capitalism the way we have it now. On the other hand, I must say, I don't have any clear formulas how to do it. It's a big challenge because, okay, now you will say, why don't simply realistically accept where we are and just stay within the system that we are in? <laughs> no, I think that what is happening now is something very dark, that gradually we are already approaching a new, almost I'm tempted to say apartheid, post-democratic society. Yes, we have democracy, it's more and more irrelevant, and it's clear that with growing problems and so on, we are appro what is happening now is new forms of apartheid and uh, connected to these new forms of, let's call it regression of, here I'm quite a naive progressist, why not? Regression of public, let's call it public ethical substance. You know, here I'm a terrorist, but leftist progressive terrorist. Don't you agree that the measure of progress is not we can debate about anything. The measure of progress for me is good progressive dogmatism. Let me take the case of rape. I wouldn't like to live in a society where I would have to argue all the time why women shouldn't be raped. I would like to live in a society where when someone uh, uh, proposes this, you know, this ridiculous bullshit, what if women secretly enjoy it or whatever, you don't have to argue against, he's an idiot, it's, you know. And now I'll give you another example which is more painful because it is actual, it happened. Wasn't the same with torture, 20 years ago, just to mention torture was obscene. Now we are ready to debate about it. And I think that even if we win, like those who are against torture, predominate, the catastrophe is already here because we accepted it as a topic of debate. And I claim more and more, you will see then, democratic rights are not for everyone. Uh, the result of the fall of the Berlin War, which fell when, two, three days ago, no, three, is that it's what? I almost remember Freud who said, whenever in a dream you have many penises, it means castration, that one penis is cut off. Well, okay, one penis was cut off the Berlin Wall, that's why we get walls everywhere today, you know, United States. So don't be, don't be put into sleep by the apparent gradual progress today. I claim that we are effectively in a dangerous era, which is searching to redefine itself, and if we remain within the existing coordinates, the only solution will be a new apartheid, a new racist apartheid society. It can be that it will not be direct apartheid, but like today, you will have people who are in different forms of outside, deprived of civil rights, and so on and so on. And I don't have a simple solution, contrary to what some people claim, I'm not saying, oh, new proletarian revolution, new communist party or whatever, no. But we will be pushed into doing something. But to do this, again, we have first to censor our dreams. Because I think the most dangerous idea in such a situation is to rely on old dreams, be this, oh, we built our own local cooperatives, or just if we return to welfare state, or whatever. I think that the left needs another 
ideological, not physical perch. You know, like we have still to go through the zero point. There are no easy ways out. So the situation is difficult, but precisely for this reason, maybe something you will emerge. I'm very sorry if I was too long. On the other hand, I'm not sorry. What could you do? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> My standard joke, don't applaud so much, spare your energy. When we communists will take power, you will have to applaud, you know? <laughs> spare the energy for people's democracy, you know, when you will have to. All right, we've got about 20 minutes left, and, and Slavoj would like to take one question at a time. So please put your hands up. I'm going to start this end of the room and come Just around. one remark to yes. give you an idea of my broad democratic spirit. I'm always for a dialogue, but if some of you are philosophers, you know which dialogues are my preferred one? Late Plato's dialogues, where one guy talks all the time and the other guy only says every 10 minutes something like, by Zeus, you are right, Socrates, and so on. So let's have this type of a dialogue. I'm, I'm afraid I can't promise that one here. <laughs> But let's see. Uh, I'd like to see men and women both put their hands up, please. Can we start with you? Sorry. Hello. Good, good evening. My name is Darko Radosavljev, and um, I have a background in contemporary dance, actually, and, and I'm studying my MA in art and po politics at Goldsmith and at LSE yeah. at the moment. My, my question would be, in fact, I have two short questions. First question is, you might have to do one because we've only got two. Ah, minutes. okay. Okay, okay sure. They're the interconnected. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna try and get thank right. you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, very, very briefly. First question. I would like to come back to your ritual with your um, Yugoslavian friends where you were saying that you enjoyed the, fr the, the freeing SS perspective of insul insulting each other. I, I would like to know if you would feel the same pleasure if there was a female in this part as well. And then if not, why not? My second part is, um, why do you think that the practice and the activity of re reconstructing our I identity keeps us from being passionate, compassionate lo lovers whatsoever, whether men or female? Okay. Thank okay. you. Okay. I will be very brief. First, the second one. Uh, you know, it depends, you know, one shouldn't be abstract here. It depends of... I claim I was not talking about constructing ourselves in some abstract way. I was talking about, this is always the problem when you have to talk fast and about many things, about how the slogan, you should reconstruct your identity permanently, rediscover yourself, how this functions in today's society. I claim it functions in this way. And that's my big, we can disagree here, but I have a great admiration for Judith Butler. But this is my problem with her, to put it very brutally. What she is describing as this subversive model of no patriarchal identity, we are uh, uh, performatively enacting or shifting identity, I agree with her. I'm just claiming she is not describing a subversive model, but precisely the, the mode of subjectivity which is predominant in our societies. I don't, why does she think that she is saying something subversive? I don't think that today the predominant form of 
how we form social identity is still this patriarchal identification and then you subvert it or whatever. No, father is something much more terrifying, much more oppressive for this. Father today no longer tells you be obedient, discipline, and so on. Father is telling you, do you know how to be sexually active? Should I teach you? Uh, 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 discover yourself, and so on, which, as everyone knows, is much worse. The second question, <laughs> insulting, and so on. Well, you can believe me or not, but I can guarantee you there are definitely women in that circle in my country. <laughs> but I will tell you another thing which may amuse you, that I even, I almost caused a heart, a heart attack to my friend uh, Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, when she asked me once, how do we find reactionary racism? And I told her simply, through progressive racism, no? Like, she thought I'm crazy, but what I meant is, and this is the form of this humiliating, I remember in ex-Yugoslavia, this was the paradise for me, almost, I don't idealize it, part of this insulting and so on was telling racist jokes. And it was wonderful because they were not jokes against the other. You know, each Yugoslav nation was identified with a certain racist cliché. Macedonians are lazy, I don't know, uh, 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 I think, no, sorry, Mas, uh, 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 Montenegro are lazy, Macedonians are thieves, Bosnians are sexually obsessive, we Slovenes are misers, and so on. And it was so wonderful because we were, it was a kind of a friendly competition, we were telling each other jokes at our own expense, and each of us gladly identified with the cliché. It was not, oh, this is a cliché, really beneath it, we are much more complex human beings. No, I like to be my cliché. And then, and then it works in such a liberating way. Don't you also feel this? I'm now appealing to your everyday experience. When I go to any country, India, China, they first give me that bullshit. We have our culture, our this, that monument. I tell them, fuck you, tell me a, <laughs> tell me a dirty joke. And then the ice is broke, broken, you do it. I claim that you need something like a minimal exchange of obscenities to do what I can only call with naive terms to establish an actual contact with another person. Otherwise, it is this terrifying politically correct racism, you know. This like, oh, how wise you are. We Western men are, are, are imperialists who exploit nature, but you have a dialogic uh, relationship with mother nature, you know, and all that bullshit <laughs> and so on. I claim that, uh, and, but on the other hand, wait a minute, I'm well aware that humor as such doesn't liberate. Here I violently disagree with uh, Umberto Eco in his name of the rose. He is totally wrong in claiming that, you know, laughter is a threat. No, if you look closely at totalitarian so-called system, laughter can also be a brutal laughter of those in power. But I claim that, nonetheless, of course I'm not talking about racism in the sense of humiliating the other. But this wonderful game, you must know them, I will not repeat them, like the one I always repeat is that joke about Montenegro friends are telling me all the time, you know, which is standard Yugoslavia, because Montenegro is an earthquake country, you know. How do a Montenegro guy and there lazy masturbate? 
he digs a hole in the earth, put his penis in, and waits for the earthquake. Because they are, they are too lazy even to, to do the gestures and so on. And then this is wonderful. Then me as a Slovene, I add my obscenity, my Bosnian friends add another obscenity, and now you will say, what about the civil war? Ah, that's my ultimate proof. Already in the early 80s, when nationalism was exploding, that's my ultimate proof of the progressive nature of this joke. They disappeared. They were incompatible with real ethnic hatred. They are slowly emerging only now, in an incredibly subversive way. Like in Bosnia, you remember Srebrenica, the terrible slaughter. I admire Bosnians. They, not they, other Bosnians, from Srebrenica, they already have jokes at their own account. You know, like uh, uh, a Bosnian from Germany returns to Srebrenica and says, oh my God, now it's peace, I want to buy land for a house there, and what are the costs? And the friend tells him, this is a complicated thing, because you know, when we were buying meat when we were young, it depends on, usually the butcher asks you, do you want meat, beef with bones or not? Like, if you want to make a, a, a consomme, a soup, you need bones. No, and the French tells him there, well, it depends. If you want land with bones, it's more expensive. <laughs> you know, it's extremely tasteless, but I think that it's not just some kind of cheap irony. It's that when things are really terrifying, horrible, isn't it a fake to play this dignified role? We are all solidary with you and so on. In a way, you can survive it only through obscenity. Because in an obscenity, in a way, you admit, sorry, it's, I cannot deal with it. Yes? Uh, no. I, uh, you are the boss. You, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go up the back. There's a lady there. But I noticed that you privilege the right side, no? <laughs> and neglect the left. I so. started there. I'm going to finish on a high note on the left. Okay. okay, okay. So you better have a big, good question over there. Um, lady, up the back. Just be loud enough, please, so that you... Oh, did you not... Did you, red scarf, did you not have your hand up? Okay. <laughs> then you can go. Uh, my name is John Bird. I started the big issue. Uh, I'm an ex-offender, ex-racist. And an ex-Marxist. Oh, sorry. I hope you got one. At some point, maybe at the same time, a racist Marxist. Well, even worse, I was a Catholic Marxist racist, which was uh, uh, hard work. Um, Are you Irish, then? Irish, London yeah. Irish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please, yeah. Uh, I, I got out of Marxism uh, about 20 years ago to start the big issue because they were incongruent, you know, they didn't go together. Yeah. Um, I got out to help the homeless to help themselves. Yeah. I'm ex-homeless, ex-offend, mm -hmm. all that old shit. But the point was, um, ever since then, I've had all the Marxists all over me because they take the point that you make, which is... Uh, the point that you made that, oh, you know, you're feeling guilty, so you've got to go out and, uh, you know, recycle this and recycle yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. If I didn't have guilt, if I couldn't use the guilt of the middle classes, yeah. there, would be, there wouldn't have been the revolutionary movement that I was involved in in, in the May and June days it, it, and all sorts of things. If you don't have revolutionary guilt, you're fucked. And if you don't, we built an international movement based on the guilt of white middle-class 
guilt. And in a way, I want to know how can we transcend that? What's the next stage? And I think that the point that you were making about this, um, uh, about this system uh, is, in, in many ways, it's the only thing there is at the moment. And that is to give the poor the chance of getting out of poverty. And we forget that. We forget that getting them out of poverty is an incredibly uh, life-saving experience. I agree. Yeah. But I'm just, I don't know if I got you correctly. I will just answer in a more abstract way. But I still doubt if manipulating the guilt of the upper middle classes is the right way. Because I think that this guilt feeling is already to such an extent inscribed into the ruling ideology. I think that's how they function today. That's how they talk. They talk, uh, listen to Bill Gates and so on. They all mention this. I mean, you know, uh, the problem is, uh, I don't think, you know whom you should read here? I like him. He wasn't even a Marxist. Fanon. Fanon wrote, Franz Fanon, some wonderful lines here, where he say, no, the point of my struggle is not to make the white people feel guilty about the horrors they did to us and so on. On the contrary, you know, this is why also, I will tell you what's the way for me. This is why also one of my heroes is Malcolm X. Great guy. Why? Because of the X. He saw something with incredible clarity that, uh, X, of course, stands for the horror of slavery. They deprive you of all roots. But his unique vision, he was, my God, a spontaneous Hegelian, was that it's not like that Hollywood City series roots, let's rediscover and you find there's some tribe and they remember your grand-grandmother, ooh, I found my roots, and so on. No, the Malcolm X's insight was that this X being deprived of your particular roots at the same time gives you a unique chance to be more universalist, authentically universalist than the, the, the West, Western people themselves. Big lesson for me here is South Africa. I remember still who was there, uh, this nativist. Let's return to our roots. Uh, Butelezi, king, who was, as we know now, paid by the apartheid regime. Whatever critical notes we have about Mandela and African National Congress, at least they never succumbed to any of this. Let's return to our uh, root stuff. So what I'm telling you is, uh, 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 how to put it, uh, solidarity must be deeper. If, if we want just to make, though, you know, the, the uh, uh, well-standing white people feel guilty or whatever, it will not work. I am a pessimist here. It will not work. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to take charge. You call me the boss. I'm going to take two questions and we're going to finish. I'll on the left. Okay, okay, okay. Two yes. on the left. Later at the back and then... Moderate left, Tony Blair, and more extreme left, or what? Yeah. <laughs> I have a very short question. Yeah? Um, what do you think about Mr. Putin? And because yeah. you talk a lot about uh, China and global capitalism without democracy. Yeah. Uh, Putin invent his own term, sovereign democracy, oh, which is like um, when you can managing capitalism. What do you think about Mr. Putin? And yeah, this is my okay. question. I want to take the other one too. Yeah, okay, okay, let's do it together. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was uh, fascinating what you were saying about individualizing and the uh, way the ideology is, uh, we internalize it, culpable. Yeah, yeah. What is the role, in your opinion, of social media in that process? What do you mean by social media? Sorry, I mean, mean uh, Facebook, um, internet. The yeah, yeah. Twitter, which I was supposed to mention to you. I haven't. Okay, okay. Okay, with regard to Putin. Maybe I don't know enough, but I am first or I tend, I am not simply subscribing to the Western view of now everything was okay, nice, and then bad Putin imperialist, but basically I am opposed to Putin because I simply think that he is just one of the specific forms of this new global capitalism which fits perfectly well, some local nationalist ideology and so on and so on. I don't see anything, uh, the only thing that I deplore, my problem with Putin is not so much democracy and so on, but he is not efficient enough, at least if he would be efficient in the way the Chinese were, you know what I mean. I claim that, uh, like this may sound very cynical what I'm saying, but from what I can judge, even at the level of the imminent capitalist development, I don't think he's doing very good. Listen, Russia remains totally dependent on uh, export of natural resources. Okay, arms help a little bit, only that. There is no, it's not a productive form of capitalism. That's the problem for me. And, uh, and it's just, Putin is just a key player. Here I'm a pessimist. I spoke recently with my good friend Alain Badiou and he made this idea why our times are so dangerous today. We are really approaching the repetition of the Europe around 1900, where you had the British Empire, now American, which is the ex-global power, losing it, and then we have new powers, at that point it was Germany, today Russia and China, who wants to also become global players. And this is a situation which can give birth to a new world war, I claim. And uh, the situation is extremely dangerous because, of course, everyone talks today already about new world war, no? But I don't think this will help, you know? The trick is that it's exactly the same as a little bit over 100 years ago. Remember that for 20 years before 1914, all of Europe was talking about world, uh, uh, the danger of a world war. And everybody was saying we have to avoid it. Even social democracy, all of them every year they, 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 they accept the declaration. And then we know what happened. But what I want to say is that all this talking about the danger of a world war, I think there is some very obscene superstitious economy in it it is as if, if we talk a lot about it, maybe it will not happen. Like, we talk about it, but we don't really believe in it. We wrongly think that if we talk a lot about it, it will not happen. It can happen. I think the situation is extremely dangerous today. Because we have a global, and I almost feel a sympathy for the United States. Don't be afraid, I'm not crazy for them. <laughs> You know, the pro I was shocked by a recent interview by Obama, who says, defending American universal policeman role, you know, when he says, uh, when there is trouble in Philippines, here, there, they don't call Moscow, they don't call Beijing, they call us. That's how the world is. We are referred to as the global policeman. 
But what he didn't take into account is the perverse way in which the new centers of power exploit this so that America will end up serving as a global policeman doing the dirty work for others. That's why Obama was so offended, you remember, he wrote a kind letter to Khamenei, to Khamenei, to Iran, now together, and Khamenei, basically in a humiliating way, rejected contact, and he was right, I mean, from a brutal rationalist point. Let Americans do dirt, the dirty work for you, fighting ISIS and so on, and you can even pretend to criticize them and so on. I think that if America still clings to this role of global policemen, no, what, what did Talleyrand said? It's not a crime, it's worse, it's a mistake. I would say something similar, you know. They will end up doing dirty work for the others, which at the end will hurt themselves. Look what's the actual result of the invasion of Iraq. Is that politically they delivered Iraq to Iran, their arch enemy, and so on. So I think, again, this entire situation is extremely dangerous. And I'm a pessimist, and I, all I can tell you is, I know the situation there, I supported Pussy Riot and so on, although for me, maybe I'm wrong, they went a little bit too far when they uh, accepted, when the two were liberated, you know, in New York, I mean, this is for me a matter of good manners and politeness. You don't do events with Richard Gere and Bob Geldof, you know. <laughs> you don't go into that. I mean, this is where I try to appeal to them. Like, yes, we support you, but what about you supporting Snowden and so on? You know, for me, everything depends on this. Pussy Riot, Snowden, the same struggle. If we drop this, we are lost. We are just in local conflicts. Because, you know, I spoke with Julian Assange and he told me it's totally wrong to think Snowden is now bought by Putin. No, Snowden is a terrible predicament. I know directly. He desperately wants to move to some Western country out. He knows what dangerous situation is this. But whenever there, there was a movement in Denmark, in Sweden, immediately American pressure, it didn't work. It's the West which is keeping Snowden in Russia. Uh, so about uh, uh, Facebook and so on, new media are for me, no, I can only give you the boring start and Marxist line. They are for me an antagonistic phenomenon. The struggle is going within new media. Okay, I have there a personal problem. When you mention Facebook and Twitter, I don't do them. I think it's a loss of time. I think it should be prohibited and so on. <laughs> Normal people. So, but uh, I am well aware, on the one hand, on emancipatory potential, like building networks outside state control, blah, blah. I buy all that. On the other hand, I was convinced by some publications, like among others, this Assange's new book on, it's very nice theory that uh, Google is basically a privatized version of NSA and so on, you know. And this is the struggle today. I think that the struggle for this new global social media is maybe even one of the principal forms of class struggle today. That's the big fight today. And I, so, it's undecided. I don't see, you know, I'm not the old-fashioned Marxist who thinks the train of history is on our side. I'm here much more on the side of Walter Benjamin. You know, when he heard this metaphor, riding the train of history, he said, yes, but our task today is to pull the emergency brake on the 
trend. I also am very suspicious of these metaphors that I hate, you know, like, oh, it's crisis, but we already see the light at the end of the tunnel. Sorry, I'm coming from Balkan. We are pessimists there. We say, <laughs> of course, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, which is another train coming. <laughs> so I don't have a great thing, but I agree with you. You know what I do? I want to, it's very stupid, to avoid at the same time this stupidly progressive, oh, new media, uh, just, but at the same time, this stupid pessimism, we are totally controlled. I'm not so afraid of this total control, because, listen, they know everything, but they are by definition stupid. What does it help to NSA to have all this data? Who will analyze this data? They don't know it. I spoke, it may surprise you, when I was in Israel with some guy who at least pretended to be part of the Israeli establishment. And he admitted to me, he told me, we have millions, all phone calls and computer control, but we have so much data, we don't know what to do with them. So I think this is a false scare, this, there is a big other. Everything is, we are, everything is recorded. Yes, it's recorded, but it's a stupid big other. They don't know what to do with it. <laughs> okay. Slavoj, I don't really know what to say at the end of that. It's been a then bit of a- shut up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Been a bit of a tour de force, gone all over so many different topics. I will give you a chance to be a true Hegelian. Oh, After I don't need you, that. Yeah, but you need. After, do something, then I will love you. Ah. After thanking them and me and all the bullshit, yes. you thank yourself. Oh. No, you don't want to. I love this. Once I did it when I ran a conference. At the end I said, am I must congratulate to myself for a great <laughs> <laughs> Look, before, I know you're going to give him another round of applause, but just before... No, no, no. Yeah, 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 we are. Um, just to, a gentle... A gentle reminder that um, Slavoj will be available to sign books at the back in a moment. If you'd let, let him leave the room before you do, that would be incredibly helpful. You're going to join me to thank him once again for an amazing evening.